All right, gentlemen. Well, welcome to class 10, Eschatology. This is the final class lesson of our 10 weeks going through systematic theology over the past uh, two, three months. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure, and um, we're looking forward to this subject tonight on end time. So as we begin, let's dive into a word of prayer. Let's go before the Lord and ask Him to bless our time together. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. We thank you, God, for this class. Thanks for Spencer organizing this and the others involved in this class. Thanks for these gentlemen and the guys who have been here throughout this time. God, we pray that this class has been enriching, insightful, not just with head knowledge, but life transformation. That would change the way we think, the way we live, what we value, choices, decisions, words, everything, God, as your word says, that would bring, that would be pleasing to you, a life of godliness as we follow you and become more like the men of God you want us to be. So, Father, uh, this is a very important subject. There's a lot to cover. I pray that you give me the ability to cover this in 30 minutes in a way that's succinct, but also meaningful and impactful, where there's some solid truth that we can just um, hold on to and discuss. So, bless our discussion. Bless our time as I share. Um, lead this. We thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet, light into our path. Thanks for the kingdom to come. Thanks for the second coming of Jesus Christ as we eagerly await that. Help us to live godly now um, and be faithful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, a lot of the content that we're going to look at tonight uh, came from a book that I got when I was at Dallas Theological Seminary. In that book, I would highly recommend if you're interested to take a deeper dive into these four views of end times, namely Revelation, but end times, including Daniel, Isaiah, and prophecies in the Old Testament. And um, it's called Four Views on the Book of Revelation by uh, Martin Pate, and there's also uh, some contributors, just three or four other contributors. But that book is where I got this content from tonight. Um, I also got some of the content at the end with some of the insights. We will have at the end concluding uh, conclusions rather regarding eschatology i have six of those and uh, those six actually come from um miller j erickson's christian theology so i'm getting this from christian theology and also from four views on the book of revelation okay so let's jump into the introduction to eschatology it says this the study of eschatology has evoked a variety of responses among believers, ranging from virtual avoidance of the, uh, to total preoccupation with the doctrine. Neither extreme is desirable. Uh, a balanced view, I would advise guys a balanced view with this. You don't want either or. A variety of systems exist, including historical, preterist, idealist, and Futurist. So we're going to look at all four of those views of end times, uh, particularly Revelation, but just end times in general tonight, which ranges across what does prophecy say about the end of the world and, and prophecy, and how do we interpret that? The status of eschatology. So the study, the Greek word is logos. Um, Greek is the word, the study of the word of God, of the last things, which is eschaton, which is last things in Greek. So that's where eschatology comes from i.e. the end of the world, the last judgment, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and in general, anything related to the future. There are various conceptions of the relationship of eschatology to other doctrines. Now, this is very key. 
I want us to hone in on this and kind of look at this from various viewpoints. Some theologians have regarded eschatology as merely an appendage or, uh, to, or the completion of another doctrine. Uh, here's an example. It has sometimes been considered as simply a part of the doctrine of salvation. We've talked about justification, talked about sanctification, and then we also mentioned glorification or the future state. So as an example, end times includes the glorification of the body. We talked about the glorification of the soul and the body. And sometimes uh, theologians have just attached end times as just an appendage, as an additional aspect, the final state of whatever this doctrine is we're talking about. When viewed as essentially a study of the final steps in Christ establishing his rule in the world, eschatology completes the doctrine of the work of Christ. So another way of saying what I just said, kind of an appendage. Other theologians, however, have looked at eschatology as an independent doctrine on par with other major doctrines. So it is, um, that's very similar to systematic theology. We're looking at all these various um, subject matters, and they're all on par. They're all very important. None really trumps another. If one does, probably the person of Christ and the work of Christ would, of course. Um, still other theologians have insisted that eschatology is a supreme doctrine. It sums up all the others and brings all the others to their fulfillment. Finally, a very small few minority, and this is not in your notes, have maintained that eschatology is, is the whole of theology, or more, um, or a different way to say it is that the whole of theology is eschatology. That's an extreme way of interpreting. So there is a variety of, a, a wide range of views of the status of eschatology. There's different areas and aspects of the way they look at it. Some would say, again, I'll, I'll summarize, it is an appendage of one theology like salvation. It just is the final state. Another would say, uh, it's on par with all the rest, and we need to study them all equally, and, and they all interpret and impact and and inform one another, which is what I think where we would be here with systematic theology. Others would say it is the whole of theology, and, and they're, they're just so preoccupied with, uh, with end times. You get end time conferences, and people talk about end times, and they study Revelation more than they do salvation, and so on. And this is just another way of, this paragraph here is just another way of expounding on what I said above, which is um, you want to avoid the two extremes. Okay. Let's dive into views of eschatology. This is some of the meat we're going to get into tonight. This is going to be very interesting here. Uh, historist view. You guys may or may not have heard of that, but what is historist view? It's, it's, an it's a method of interpretation or hermeneutics. The biblical prophecies concerning the end times have been occurring, or they've been, they're being fulfilled as we speak since Jesus' resurrection and ascension and continue through this day. In other words, we, are, we have been living revelation since the time of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Ever since then, all throughout church history, revelation has been unfolding and we're still in it now today. That's a historist view. And um, let's take a look at some of the bullet point here. One of the most influential aspects of the early Protestant historist paradigm. Um, now, early Protestant would go back about 500 years, let's just call it. So... About 500 years ago, this kind of worldview, or not worldview, sorry, this kind of theological form of interpretation um, came about. And it was the assertion that scriptural identifiers of the Antichrist were matched only by the institution of the papacy. In other words, let me pause right there. The papacy, which is the Pope, this, in, this method of interpretation of scripture, they would say that, that the Pope is the Antichrist. 
That's what they thought back in those days, Middle Ages, or late Middle Ages. And therefore, because the papacy has continued from one to another, because there's always a pope in the Catholic Church, in other words, the Antichrist is the Catholic Church, is the, the beast, and then is the, 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 uh, uh, the actual Antichrist with the beast system, which is the institution of the Catholic Church, would be the Pope himself, which, of course, there's been a succession of popes from Peter all the way through modern day today. So that's kind of how this really got started, is the idea that this Antichrist isn't just one being that's going to come in the future, an individual in the future. This is an institution, and it's the Pope, and it continues throughout two, uh, two, you know, 2,000 years of church history. Particular significance, it's the second sentence here, and concern uh, were the papal claims of authority over both the church through apostolic succession in the state through the divine right of the kings. Um, let me stop and explain what that means. The Catholic Church stated that interpretation of Scripture, um, everything that we are to believe as Christians, as believers, uh, all comes through the authority of the Catholic Church, namely the Pope, and then their trickles down to cardinals and so on the way they have it ordered you can't challenge and this is where Martin Luther and the Reformation would say well wait a second um, you're abusing authority right now and and each and most people that were Catholic couldn't even read first of all they couldn't read because it was very illiterate back then but a lot of people didn't have the, the Bible in the German language as an example so Martin Luther interpreted into the German language to help people understand that you know this is what scripture teaches about God and justification comes by faith alone and Christ alone and not through um, baptism and not through some form actually he wouldn't say that he actually would believe that not through uh, papal bull which is what they used to sell I'm getting, getting into the weeds a little bit I'm giving you guys some context there was a piece of paper where they simply say if you buy this piece of paper you're forgiven of all your sins and you can also forgive and, and get out of purgatory or hell those who have passed away their loved ones and family members if you buy this papal bull. And the proceeds from all of those purchases actually went to buy St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which stands uh, today. So the idea that the Catholic Church abused the authority was seen by a lot of reformers uh, back then as they interpreted it as the Antichrist. So that's kind of where some of this historist um, in some regards comes from. The idea of the Antichrist, therefore, became institutional, I just talked about that, i.e. the timelessness of the Catholic papacy rather than a specific figure in the future, which I just mentioned. So I'm not going to get into that too much. I can get into some of the weeds even further, but that is really uh, what the historist view uh, originated from, and it is a method of interpretation of Scripture. Um, I'm willing to bet that out of the three of us here, at least one of, or four of us, one of us was like, whoa, blew my mind. I never, never uh, thought of end times as something that was interpreted in this manner, but there are uh, Christians and people in different circles that actually today still actually teach that. Okay, preterists. All right, let's get into that. The entire books of prophecy have come to completion from when Jesus died and the fall of the Jewish temple. In other words, all of prophecy, all of revelation, already was fulfilled as to counter we're living it today because the papacy is still around and the catholic church is still around and that's the antichrist and we're in the end times until jesus returns from the time ascension this says revelation 
was already fulfilled except for the second coming of Jesus in heaven. Everything else except for that has been fulfilled up until uh, A.D. 70. So from the time Jesus ascended till A.D. 70, what happened in A.D. 70? In A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem and they viewed by Nero, and they viewed Nero as the Antichrist. And they viewed uh, the tribulations happening in the persecutions of the church where uh, Christians were being killed and martyred and they were scattered and the blood of the martyrs was all over Jerusalem and, and Nero literally had it in for Christians. If you guys go back and read what happened, um, it was, it was the, some of the worst persecutions, if not the worst, of Christians at the early church. But the good news is because of that persecution under Nero's tyranny, the gospel spread. And actually the Lord used that to spread the gospel uh, to other countries and other parts of the world. But the preterist view says that Revelation already occurred. Everything that John prophesied about, which is interesting because, uh, because John supposedly, most uh, scholars would say that he wrote the book of Revelation around A.D. 90 to 91, which would come 20 years after the fall uh, of the temple, the destruction of the temple and the great persecution under Nero, so they would say that, that John, when he talks about the day of the Lord in the, in the first chapter of um, Revelation, the day of the Lord is, is not a future tense. It's a past tense. It's something that already occurred. And, he's, and the book of Revelation is basically summarizing what already happened and, uh, and what's already been fulfilled. So let me read this here. In formulating his theology, C.H. Dodd, who is a theologian really behind this preterist viewpoint, gave eschatology a whole new reorientation. He plays particular attention to the biblical references to, quote, the day of the Lord. Whereas in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is viewed as a future matter, in the New Testament, it is depicted as a present occurrence. In other words, eschatology has already been fulfilled or realized. So another way of uh, uh, explaining this would be called realized um, Realized eschatology is what you would call it, is, is another way to say preterist. And this is not in your notes, but I'll read this. Hence, Dodd's views uh, have come to be known as realized eschatology. Okay, uh, Instead of looking ahead for future fulfillment of prophecy, we should note the ways in which it was already or already has been occurred or fulfilled. For example, the triumph of God was evidenced, I'm sorry, was evident when Jesus saw Satan fall from heaven. Uh, with the coming of Christ, the judgment has already taken place. And another example, eternal life is already our possession. Um, <clears throat> I want to let you guys know that a preter there is a denomination today that is very strong on the preterist interpretation of Revelation. And that are the Presbyterian churches. So Presbyterian churches or Presbyterian theologians, if you ever go to a Presbyterian church and you ask them about... Um, end times, not all of them, but a lot of them, you will have a preterist approach. They will say that revelation already took place, most of it, except for the second coming and then the great white throne judgment and the beam of seat for believers and then eternal heaven, basically the last couple chapters. Everything else with all that symbolism, that's all stuff that already took place between the time of Jesus' ascension and uh, the destruction of the temple. And it does, anyway, I'll, I'll stop right there. There's more I could say, but that is this is very common today. Another way of looking at this is something called amillennialism. Amillennialism, 
stands in contrast to millennialism. Now, we see in Revelation, the 1,000 years it talks about where Christ reigns on earth for 1,000 years. Is that literal, something to take place in the future? Or is that something that's symbolic that already occurred? Um, the amillennial would say that it is a spiritual aspect, or it's, or it's, I'm sorry, it already occurred. You know, this is something that's past tense. Um, it's not something that we look forward to in the future. It's not a literal to come. It's already something that's already taken place. And it's, it's very much in line with the preterist interpretation of end times that this, much of it, not all of it, much of it has already occurred. Okay. Uh, idealists. This is another way of looking at it. Uh, the allegorical interpretation of prophecy rather than literal events. The idealist views eschatology um, like much of how they view the rest of Scripture. Scripture is, in many ways, symbolic of the struggle against evil throughout human history and the rise and fall of evil rather than actual events that occurred in the, I should say past, not part, in the past or will occur in the future. I'll stop right there. I'm going to explain a little bit of this. The idealists are really the liberal theologians. This came out of primarily the 19th century. You have a guy named Frederick Schleiermacher. He is kind of the founder of higher criticism, German higher criticism. Uh, which a lot of interpretation came out of that in the 19th century, the 1800s, and Germany especially, where a lot of these theologians uh, began to interpret the scripture uh, as more allegorical as opposed to actual events. Here's an example. They would say, Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a whale. It's just a story meant to tell you a moral point or a theological point. Uh, the Red Sea didn't literally part. It's just a story meant to explain uh, a meaning or a theological something. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He didn't really die on the cross. Uh, it, Jesus was just a good moral figure, and, 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 and we're supposed to follow his example. So they, they would look at um, stories in Scripture as more allegorical, and that would certainly be the case when you see a lot of the beasts and the mark of the beast with the horns and so on and so forth. They would see that as allegorical as opposed to... Now, of course, no one would say that's literal. It's not a literal beast. Uh, there's a difference between allegorical and symbolic. Allegorical says the event didn't take place. It's a story meant to, meant to explain um, a deeper meaning. That's allegorical. Um, symbolic says it's a symbol with a d deeper meaning. Obviously, like... Uh, the cross, okay? See the cross. That's a symbol of what? What Jesus did on the cross. So the last point, the futurist, which is definitely where I land a thousand percent and where Seacoast would land in most conservative evangelical churches, we'll talk about that, would be much more on the symbolic side. That revelation is symbolic, not necessarily allegorical, but there's symbols and meaning behind it. But let me get into the idealist a little bit to unpack a little bit further um, what's going on here. Idealist eschatology came about as Renaissance thinkers began to doubt the kingdom of heaven had been or would be established on earth. Um, okay, there's a lot I could say about that, but I'll keep going. But still believed in its establishment. Rather than the kingdom of heaven manifesting itself in society, it is seen as established subjectively for the individual. Christian, uh, Christian eschatological idealism is distinct from historist, preterist, and futurist views of eschatology in that it does not see any of the prophecies 
except in some cases, such as the second coming of Christ and the final judgment, as being fulfilled in a literal, physical, earthly sense in the past, present, or future. In other words, the three other views, we looked at two out of the three so far, other than idealists, the historists and the preterists, they would all say that the, the events of Revelation are actual literal events, whether it takes place over, over the 2,000 years of church history, or it took place both before AD 70, which is the preterists, um, or futurists, which, means, which states that it will happen in the future yet to come. All three of those views say that these are literal events that will take place. It will actually happen. Uh, the idealist says these aren't events that will take place at all. They haven't in the past. They won't in the future. They're not in the present. These are all allegories meant to give you a deeper uh, interpretation or meaning. Uh, you don't have this in your notes, but I'll read this. One of the, a couple of proponents of this, F.D. Morris, uh, interpreted the kingdom of heaven um, idealistically as a symbol representing society's general improvement. In other words, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven all the time in the Gospels, Jesus wasn't talking about the heaven on, that, that's going to come down, the heaven with the heavenly Father, the eternal state where believers will be with him for eternity. Jesus was actually talking about society's improvement. Talk about a radical interpretation of scripture. Um, instead of a physical and political kingdom. Karl Barth interpreted eschatology as representing existential truths that bring the individual hope rather than history or future. In other words, Karl Barth said that this is more about you as an individual than, than, than all of us as the church. Just different views. I know a lot of this stuff could be new or a wacko to you guys, but hey, this is just different views that are still out there today. Uh, different author, authors have suggested that the beast of Revelation represents various social injustices, such as exploitation of workers, uh, wealth, the elite, commerce, materialism, and imperialism. Okay, let's get into futurists. Again, all those right there are all what? They're all allegorical. You know, it's, it's, it's interpretation of uh, not literal events, but it's an allegory of something. Okay, futurists. And again, I want to stress futurists, in my mind, is the only orthodox view other than perhaps, perhaps the preterist view, um, which would state that most of the book of Revelation already occurred. Um, there's some, some weight to that one. If you get into scripture, there, the uh, Presbyterian theologians, uh, Reformed theologians can certainly make their arguments, but so can the futurists. And in fact, the futurists can make way more arguments from Scripture uh, than a preterist can. But it, anyway, I'll stop right there and we'll, we'll continue on this. It says this, All prophecies are forthcoming, the more modern-day, end-of-times idea. The futurist views, view assigns all or most of prophecy to the future, shortly before the second coming of Jesus Christ, especially when interpreted in conjunction with Daniel, Isaiah 2, 11 through 22, 1 Thessalonians 4, and other eschatological sections of the Bible. Futurist interpretations generally predict a resurrection of the dead and a rapture of the living, wherein all true Christians are gathered to Christ prior to the time of God's kingdom uh, comes to earth. They also believe a tribulation will occur a seven-year period or three-and-a-half-year period of time when believers will experience worldwide persecution and martyrdom. Futurists defer on when believers will, will be raptured, but there are three primary views of the rapture. G, uh, it will occur before the tribulation, so uh, believers will be snatched up to heaven before the great tribulation, near or at the midpoint tribulation, so it's mid-trib, or at the end of the tribulation. 
There is also a fourth view of multiple raptures throughout the tribulation, but this view does not uh, have a mainstream following. So there's really three predominant views of when the rapture, before, during, or after. Okay, so <clears throat> that's absolutely where I stand, and I would say most evangelical, other than your uh, preterist views, most evangelical churches and believers would absolutely be more futurist. Now, here are conclusions regarding eschatology. I looked at this, guys, and I give you guys a wide variety of different interpretations that are out there throughout, you know, especially the past 500 years to 200 years. Here are some conclusions, and I like this. I think Miller J. Erickson is very fair and balanced in how he approaches everything that you guys just heard me say. One, eschatology is a major topic of systematic theology. Um, conse consequently, we must not neglect it as we construct our theology. On the other hand, it is but one doctrine among several not the whole of theology. So we can't overemphasize it or under. We must find a good balance with it. We must not convert our entire doctrinal system into eschatology, nor allow our theology to be distorted by an undue emphasis on it. Okay, so I think that point's pretty well taken. We want to find it as equal to and, and, and worthy of focus, but we don't want to over or under emphasize it. That's why we had one class on it for this, and not five out of the ten, right? Okay. Uh, we need to recognize that eschatology does not pertain exclusively to the future. Jesus did introduce a new age, and the victory over the powers of evil has already been won, even though we, the struggle is still to be enacted in history. In other words, we've talked a lot, a lot about this in the class. Spencer mentioned justification. That's an act. That's an event. And before the Father, now and for eternity— we are seen as justified in his eyes through the blood of Christ. The righteousness of Christ has made us righteous. We have his righteousness. Uh, so these are events that have taken place that we will that we experience now, even though it's still part of the future to come. We are children of God. We, we, have the ta we can taste the joys of heaven now, but we're not there yet. So there's a sense of already not yet. Okay, three. We must pair with the above insights I just talked about, number two. The truth that there are elements of predictive prophecy, even within Jesus' ministry, which simply cannot be regarded as already fulfilled. We must live with an openness to and anticipation of the future. Um, I think it is overwhelmingly obvious, if you look at Scripture, that um, Jesus is talking about the future and things to come. Um, and I'll, I will say this, though. For all four views— even the idealist, which is the most radical, which is, which is none of this is actually happening. Um, it's all uh, allegorical. Even with all four views, they all believe in two things. I think it might be in here. They all believe in a literal second coming of Christ. Jesus will return, literally, bodily, to bring um, believers together into heaven for eternity. And the final judgment for those who know the Lord and know. So those two events... Um, all four views agree on. All the rest, there is a, a range of interpretation. All right, number four, the truth of eschatology should arouse in us a watchfulness and alertness and expectation of the future. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour in which I will return. Not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son of Man, but only the Father. So we must have a watchfulness. We do not know when he will return. He did make that very clear. <clears throat> Uh, when we study the doctrines of eschatology, 
we should stress their spiritual significance and practical application. They are incentives to purity of life, diligence in service, and hope for the future. They are to be regarded as resources for ministering, not topics for debate. Well said, uh, Miller J. Erickson, because there's been way too much debate and not enough. How does this inform my Christian life today? Um, when I talked about heaven many classes ago, I mentioned that a lot of believers have a distorted view of heaven. They view it as just this floating in the clouds in this spiritual state, and they don't understand that it's much like our earth here, and it's a literal heaven on earth, and we have literal bodies, and we'll be eating a meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and celebrating with the believers in the Old and New Testament, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, and um, and it'll be a lot like this, less just the world experience of sin and fallenness that we experience. And, um, but because a lot of believers have a distorted view of heaven, it actually disincentivizes them to live a godly life now. They'd prefer this world and this here, and Jesus didn't say that. He said that it is far better to be, Paul, I'm sorry, Paul says far better to be with the Lord than in the body, right? And so, uh, in the same way, eschatology end times should, if we have a proper view, a healthy view of this, transform how we live here now. We shouldn't be scared of it. We should anticipate it. We should understand it. We should look at it balanced with other the, uh, theologies. Um, but it should inform our life today, namely, we'll talk about that, purity, service, and hope. Okay, last point here, six. As important as it is to have convictions regarding um, eschatological matters, it is good to bear in mind that they vary in significance. Agreement is essential on such basic matters as the second coming of Christ and the life hereafter, literally. On the other hand, holding to a specific position on less central and less clearly expounded issues, such as the millennium or the tribulation, should not be made a test of orthodoxy or a condition of Christian fellowship and unity. Emphasis should be placed on points of agreement, not on those of disagreement. Amen. So, some application here. We're right at 8 o'clock. We have a half an hour to discuss. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot to, to get into tonight because there was a ton covered here. Interesting stuff. Um, first, what did you learn in this discussion that you previously did not know? Two, and if so, we can talk about that and get into some discussion. And two, and I do want to talk about two. This is very practical. How does eschatology, just the idea of the, the, the conclusion of this world and this life and this experience and in view of the heaven to come and Jesus' return, how does it inform or impact your present relationship with the Lord Jesus? Namely, I want to talk about purity. How does it incentivize us to live more pure now? To give in service towards the church and reach the lost and impact the world. What does that look like? Why and how? How does end times do that? Um, I didn't really talk about that tonight. I'm hoping that you guys can kind of connect the dots on your own. We can talk about those dots. Or hope. How does it give you hope? And I haven't talked a lot about that, but we have throughout this class. Uh, we talked about glorification. We have a lot to look forward to. The glorified soul, the glorified body, the heaven to come, so much hope. The, that which uh, was wrong in this life, made wrong, God will make right in Jesus Christ. Every tear will be wiped from their eyes, it says in Revelation chapter 22. And uh, there will be no more death or pain or sorrow or loss for the old order of things will have passed away. Behold, the new has come. So much hope, so much to look forward to, and there's a lot we can talk about. So I'm going to open the floor to you gentlemen. 
uh, on those two points. What did you learn tonight, and how does eschatology inform your relationship, your walk with Jesus Christ?